Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is a continuation of God's comfort in all circumstances. But this morning he calls for separation. Paul calls for separation. The last time we were together, in verses 8 through 10, Paul ended our last section of chapter 6 here on how to fight suffering. And in those verses, 8 through 10, before we get started on 11 through 18, we learn that no enemy can discourage us. And you know, we read that, we hear about it, but you know, we have to live it. We can't let the enemy discourage us, cause us to turn and to run, to compromise. We serve God no matter what the circumstances are. Whether people honor us or despise us. That's what Paul was saying in verses 8 through 10. Whether they slander us or praise us. We're honest, but they call us phonies. We're ignored even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We've been beaten, but not killed, Paul said. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We're poor, but we, ha- but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Now, as we start the last section here of chapter 6, Paul pleads from the depth of his own heart with the people. In a way, Paul has been justifying himself to the Corinthians because they're, they're paying too much attention to the critics, to Paul's critics. Others might put their security in this world, but Paul did not. Paul was more acquainted with suffering. And then suddenly, there comes a great outpouring of emotion from Paul as he pours out his heart to his Corinthian converts who who he dearly loves. Now, many of them were still just babies in Christ, and he wanted them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. So he opens up to his Corinthian friends here. Now, let's begin in verse 11. He says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. So Paul told them how he really felt. He let them know just how much he loved them, even though some of them had done him wrong. The Corinthians were acting cold-hearted towards Paul, towards his words. But he explained to them that his harsh words came from his love for them. You know, it's easier to react negatively against the leaders that God has placed over us rather than accept their exhortations and their counsel as a sign that they love us. Many times we take exhortations and counsels as though I've done something wrong. Maybe it could be, but in Paul's case, this wasn't it. And many times the exhortations and counsel that we might give somebody is because we love them and we want to help them and encourage them to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. We need to have an open heart rather than a hardened heart towards God's messengers. In Hebrews, it says in chapter 13, 17, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Back in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 18, specifically verses 24 through 28, If you remember when Paul left Ephesus to go to Jerusalem, he left his friends Aquila and Priscilla there. He left them behind in Ephesus to carry on the witnessing of Christ in the synagogues. 
They were probably blown away one Sabbath day when they were visiting the synagogue and they heard this Jewish teacher named Apollos preaching many of the truths that they themselves believed and taught. Apollos was certainly an exceptional man in many ways. Apollos knew the Old Testament scriptures well, and he was able to teach them with eloquence and with power. The scripture says this of Apollos, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord. The word fervent means boiling. Apollos was fervent in his spirit. He was boiling. He was red hot for God. And he was diligent in the way he presented the message of God. And he was bold enough to go into the synagogue and preach to the Jews. The only problem was that this enthusiastic man was preaching an incomplete gospel. Apollos only knew the baptism of John. And that's where his message ended. So he didn't know anything about Calvary or the resurrection of Christ or the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He had zeal. He was fervent, the Bible says, but he lacked spiritual knowledge. So when Aquila and Priscilla were listening to him, after he was finished, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, these spiritual leaders, they weren't there to mock him. They weren't there to tear him down. They were there to encourage him. They were to teach him more so that he could be a more, a more effective teacher. And as a result, Priscilla and Aquila, taking him aside, led him into a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the next Sabbath, Apollos returned to the synagogue and he gave the Jews the rest of the gospel. And he was so effective that the believers in Ephesus highly recommended him to the churches in Achaia. And in Achaia, Apollos not only strengthened the saints there, but he also debated with the unbelieving Jews. And he convinced many of them that Jesus is the Messiah. Thankfully, Apollos met with some godly saints, particularly Priscilla and Aquila, who could help him with his lacking doctrine without getting upset. He listened to what Aquila and Priscilla had to say to him. I mean, think what would have happened if he would have been prideful and became defensive like many do, defensive, and say, you know, hey, don't bother. I've read the Bible a million times. I know what I'm talking about. I know I've been preaching for a long time. I don't need you to come and, you know, tell me what I need to do. They didn't go there to tell him what to do. They wanted to help him and encourage him and give him more than what he had. And, you know, when we get to a point in our walk with God where we think we don't need to know anymore, when we think we've read it all because we've read the Bible several times, when we stop growing, that's when we start to die. We never come to a place in our Christian walk where we learn it all. It's God's word. It's infinitely deep. I don't think we could ever learn it in all of eternity. Because again, it's so infinitely deep. But this is what Paul is talking about here. About being open and, 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 you know, and not closing yourself off. Again, if Apollos would have been prideful and defensive... You know, he wouldn't have been able to be so effective or more effective than he already was. Look at verse 12. You are not restricted by us, 
but you are restricted by your own affections. Paul now shares his opinion with the, with the Corinthian uh, church. He says, there's no lack of love on our part. He says, you are the ones who have withheld your love from us. So he lets his Christian friends know what he wants. Verse 13. He says, now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. He says, hey, I'm asking you to respond as if you were my own children. He says, open your hearts to us. So he's pleading with them to be as open with him as he was with them. Because he feels like a father to him, to them. And he was asking them to be fair. There were no restraints in his love for them. He wasn't holding back his love from them. There shouldn't be any reason, again, for them holding back their love for him. Paul wasn't like a lot of preachers today who seem to show up for the service and they do their thing and then they disappear afterward. You can't seem to talk to them. They don't mingle with the sheep. They don't have any fellowship with them. They don't have any one-on-one with them like, like, like Paul did. See, Paul wasn't like that. Paul wasn't just a preacher. He was a servant first. And that's what we need to understand. We are servants first. And then we're preachers, Sunday school teachers, missionaries, whatever. We're, we're servants first. Jesus was a servant Paul stuck around as much as he could, counseling his new believers, teaching them the principles of the Christian life. He often worked at a secular job during the day, not just to take care of his financial needs, but to be in touch with everyday people that he could lead to the Lord. Because you see, love is mutual. It is reciprocal. He wanted them to love him as well as he loved them. So he recruits them, and he gives them a call to serve which is really a call to suffer. A call to follow Christ is a call to die. In continuing this part of the letter, Paul calls them to a separation. This is so important for us to understand, to grasp. It's a call to separation. In continuing this part of the letter, Paul calls them to a separation. Look at verse 14. We're going to look at the three parts of it, but, but verse 14, we call it 14a, the first part. Paul said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Notice the words, do not. This is not an invitation. It is not a suggestion. It's a command. He said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And Paul was thinking of the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 22.10 where it says you must not plow with an ox and a donkey harnessed together. Why? Well, one is a clean animal, the other is an unclean animal. One is tall, the other is short. One is strong, one is weaker. That's why this is a wise and general prohibition. It disapproves of a believer marrying an unbeliever. Why? Because you have two people together trying to pull together when they're headed in two different directions. It disapproves of a believer going into business partnership with an unbeliever. It disapproves of a believer joining a club or a society or a lodge or a fraternity with an unbeliever. The reason is very simple. 
Because it won't be long before the believer and the unbeliever will start to pull in opposite directions. Or the believer will start to pull in opposite directions. Either that or the believer will be dragged into behavior that will compromise his testimony and trouble his conscience. And the Bible gives us several examples of being unequally yoked and the results. When Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and he took his seat on the city council who ran that perverted city. We have the example of when Elimelech moved to Moab and his sons married a Moabite woman. Also, Jehoshaphat was a gifted ruler and he was a faithful worshiper of the true and the living God. But he did one thing that eventually uh, proved to be disastrous. Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab, a worshiper of Baal. Samson married a Philistine woman. Solomon started marrying the pagan daughters of the kings of the surrounding nations. And there's no doubt in every case that a lot of rationalizing goes on. I've seen it many times. When a couple wants to get married, one is an unbeliever and one is a believer. And when we do our, 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 our premarital um, uh, application, if you will, you know, we ask if, 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 you know, if they're born-again Christians. They each fill it out individually. One will say yes, one will say no. And we won't marry them if they're, not, if they're both not Christians. And one will say, well, you know, they like going to church, and they like the songs, and they like the Bible stories, and, and they like the people. And I go, that doesn't make them born again. That doesn't mean that when you get married, everything's going to be the way God, God wants it to be. As a matter of fact, that's when you're going to see it change. And I've seen it over the years, over and over and over again. Hey, they're being on the best behavior, wanting to get to the altar. But after what they say I do, the one usually that's not a believer doesn't want to come to church anymore. Doesn't want to come and, and be a part of what he or she wants to be or thought they were going to be. And then I get the call. You know, we're having a tough time right now. You know, would you pray for us? And, and you know, he doesn't want to come to church or she doesn't want to come to church anymore. And, and we're just going separate ways. That's exactly what the Bible says. You're pulling in different directions. No matter how close it seems, that person might be to being a Christian. You don't judge it on how close a person is to being a Christian. Are they, are they not a committed believer? And so again, it's easy in the heat of passion or infatuation or in the pressure of circumstances or under the influence of, of some smooth talker or blinded by the idea of a quick promotion or quick financial gain to explain away or to ignore this clear-cut scripture here this this no room for compromise scripture it says do not it doesn't it's not it can't get any clearer than that do not god has commanded do not and he says that at whatever the cost it's a strict separation that is to be put into practice that principle 
or I should say the principle that salvation from sin is to be followed by separation from the world is taught all through the Bible. And it's in plain words. And you see it in type and you see it in shadow. When God called Abraham, he first revealed himself to, God, to, to Abraham. And then he demanded that Abraham separate from the old way of life. Lot, on the other hand, lost his fortune and his family in Sodom because he ignored the principle of, of separation. When God redeemed Israel, he first put them under the blood. Remember the, the Passover, the, under the blood of the lamb? And then he separated them from Egypt. He took them out of there, which represented the world, the old way of life, by bringing them through the water, the Red Sea, which is a type of the baptism, and then closing the Red Sea to be a permanent barrier between their new walk of faith and their old way of bondage. The closing up of the, of the Dead Sea symbolically said, you're never to go back to Egypt. You're never to go back to the world, to the old way of life. And it was a sad day for Israel when Joshua didn't completely wipe out the Canaanites and take possession, full possession of the Philistine and Phoenician cities. And when he entered into an agreement with the Gibeonites. It's a sad day for us when we forget that saved people are to be a separated and sanctified people. And then Paul gives several reasons why separation is so important to us if we're going to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. First, righteousness demands it. Look at the second part of verse 14. He says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Sooner or later, the person who enters into an unequal yoke with an unbeliever, whether it's in marriage, business, some club membership, you know, they're going to find themselves called on to compromise some righteous demand of God. Because God's moral standards are far, far higher and holier than the world's standards are. Lot's a good example. The Bible says, in spite of all that we know about Lot, the Bible says he was a righteous man. The Holy Spirit calls him just. Righteous Lot. And refers to him as that righteous man and refers to his righteous soul. Not only that, listen to what Peter says about Lot in 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8. It says, he, speaking of Lot, was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Peter says that Lot was oppressed. The word filthy conduct refers to the lustful style of the people of Sodom. The word for wicked means lawless. You see, what Lot was forced to see and what he was forced to hear every day of his life living in that perverted city tormented his righteous soul. He, he saw the filth. He, he saw the unrighteousness that he was living and it tormented his soul. He was tormented by the lawless deeds, by the sinful things that he saw in that Sodomite city. And the word for lawless means, that it means their contempt of law. What was a man like Lot doing in a place like Sodom? Well, he went there to make money. He was there to make money. And then he actually became a member of Sodom's government. 
that was paid to uphold the rights of the community, including the homosexuals' agenda there. How different it was, on the other hand, with Abraham, who lived in separation from the world in the plains of Mamre. Paul said, what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? As a result of Lot's compromise, look at the kind of man Lot became. He offered his two daughters to the perverted Sodomites in hopes that it would save the two men who were staying the night with him. Look how his offer was rejected and his life was threatened. Look how he desperately and unsuccessfully tried to get his daughters to fear uh, in their hearts the coming judgment. And we see how he realized that his wife was lost to him, overwhelmed by the judgment of God. Look at what it all deteriorated to in the end. Drunk and dishonored, and his daughters having an incestuous relationship with their father. They laid with their father, the scripture says, and each of them got pregnant by their father, giving birth to Ammon and Moab, who became age-long enemies of God's people. Those are the things that happen when you, when, you, when you compromise. In comparison, look at godly Abraham living a separated life. He was honored and praised by millions, even to this day. See, God, God knows what's best for us. Look at the third part of verse 14. And what communion has light with darkness? What communion has light with darkness? Many Christians think that they can live with one foot in the world and one in the world to come. Hey, God won't have that. Paul said in Colossians 1, 12 and 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son. We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Verse 15, And what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Here Paul continues his sequence of contrast by mentioning the absolute impossibility of expecting harmony between Christ and Belial. Belial, another word for Satan. Look at the words that Paul used in verses 14 through 16. Words like fellowship, communion, accord, part agreement each of these words speak of having something in common the word accord here gives us our english word symphony symphony and it speaks of beautiful music that comes when the players are reading the same music and are obeying the same conductor i mean what chaos there would be if each person playing their instrument in their own way to their own tune no harmony, no beautiful sound. God's desires for his people are seen in these words. He wants us to share with each other fellowship. He wants us to have all things in common. That's communion and the blessings of the Christian life. He wants us to enjoy harmony and agreement as we live and work together. But when we try to walk with the world, 
and with the Lord at the same time, we break this spiritual fellowship and we create discord and division. Amos said in chapter 3, 3, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? The inference is no. Paul saw believers and unbelievers as totally different people when it came to righteousness and unrighteousness. And when it came to light and darkness, and when it came to Christ and Belial, and when it came to belief and infidelity, and when it came to God's temple and idols, he saw them totally different. So how could you possibly possibly bring these things, these opposites, together? The very nature of the Christian demands that he be separated from what's unholy. And there's a thought today among Christians that, that, that uh, forsaking sin does not mean forsaking the world. In order to forsake sin, we must forsake the world. We are in the world, but we're not of it. We are not to be friends with the, with the world because the world is an enemy to God. It's the world that crucified Jesus Christ. How can we love anything or anyone in that sense that... that is a part of the crucifixion of Christ. You can't bring these opposites together. Verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, here's the last of Paul's rhetorical questions. God addresses his people through the scriptures, and he gives them promises and instructions. And the promise here in verse 16 is fourfold. Notice first it says, he, God, will dwell with his people. Second, he will walk with them. Third, he will be their God. And fourth, he will make them his people. And the words here are a, are a combination of two passages from Scripture, Exodus 25, 8 and Exodus 29, 45. Scripture teaches us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of the believers. They make, the, 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 the triune God makes their abode with believers, their home with believers. God is always with his people from the time of creation in the Garden of Eden to the restored garden after the renewal of all things. Verse 17 and 18. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. There are so many unclean things that are an ordinary, everyday part of life and society that we encounter in our lives every day. Unclean books, movies, TV. There are dirty jokes, dirty stories, dirty suggestions. There are unclean and perverted practices and lifestyles that are excused by the unsaved and and accepted even in the church today. We're living in a filthy world And we're commanded to separate ourselves from its filth and defilement as much as is humanly possible. Again, we are are part of it. We are in the world, but we're not of it. 
then with those things that are definitely dirty, there are things that are questionable. And a good rule to go by is if it's doubtful, don't do it. If there's something about it that makes you question it. We're not to mingle with the world in any way that might compromise us or defile us. We are to be separated from it. Then what God God say here, then I will receive you. Then I will receive you. The word receive means to take into one's favor. And favor from God is is the greatest favor of all. Men socialize with the world in order to be accepted by the world. And to be favored by the world. Instead, believers should behave in such a way that they cultivate the acceptance and the approval and favor of God. And as we take a stand of separation from the world, and when we take up our new position in Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of the living God, then we can draw on Him for all of our needs. Those who don't separate from the world, You often hear them complain that God seems so far away. But it's not a matter of space. It's a matter of heart. Because the Bible says that that God is everywhere, that the world can't contain him. So he's always there. He's always next to you. So it's not a problem of space that makes you feel like he's so far away. It's a problem of the heart. Not living right. Not having a a, a good conscience. They say they don't seem to sense the sweet blessings and the presence of God in their lives. And that's because they have very little of any fellowship with God. They don't attend church regularly to be taught and to be fed and to have that fellowship in the body of Christ. They don't have it through that prayer time with God. They don't have it with the reading of the word of God. They don't have that fellowship with the study of God's word. How can we have the sense the presence and have that fellowship with God if we're not in the word and we're not having that, 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 that quiet time with him? How can we say we know God when we don't know his word? But in wanting to be doctrinally and personally pure, we must not become so self-centered that we ignore the needy world around us. Some people become so self-righteous that they ignore those needs, those who are in need. In other words, some people become so spiritually minded, they're of no earthly good. Our Lord was holy, he was harmless, he was undefiled, and he was separate from sinners. And yet, he was a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, Luke says in chapter 7, verse 34. See, separation isn't isolation. Like a skillful doctor, we have to practice contact without contamination. Otherwise, we'll isolate ourselves from from the people who need Jesus the most. It can be done. You can have contact with this world without, without compromise and without contamination. 
A lot of people say, well, you know, it's so corrupt out there and I'm around it all the time. I, I can't help that you know, becoming a part of it. Yeah, you can, Christian, if you're a Christian. There's examples of it in the Bible. Remember young Samuel who lived with Eli, his two ungodly sons? Yet Samuel was untouched by their uncleanness. Daniel, taken to Babylon, given Babylonian names, taught the Babylonian culture. Daniel said he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, and he didn't. Joseph in Egypt, surrounded by that pagan culture, and yet he wasn't corrupted by it. Jesus was surrounded by the sinners of his world, and he knew no sin. So we can't say it's impossible to live in this corrupt world without being corrupted by it. That's an excuse. So in closing, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is always your father and never forget that. And you're his son or you're his daughter. What God is saying here is that he would like to act like a father to you. He would like to treat you as a son or a daughter. But if you're going off into worldliness, and if you don't mean what you say, and you're hypocritical in your life, then you can be sure of one thing, that God the Father will discipline you. God doesn't want to be disciplining us all the time. You know, it's like a parent. You, you know, you hate when you have to discipline your child all the time. God doesn't want to be disciplining us all the time. And that's why he asks you to come out from among them. To be separate from the world. Not to touch the unclean thing. Then God can have an intimate relationship with you as a father with a son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your powerful word, God. And Lord, help us to not forget those two small words, do not. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not have any unclean things around. Not be involved in any unclean things. Do not be a part of any unclean thing. But let us be let us be separated from anything that would compromise us, from anything that would make us unclean, anything that would defile or corrupt us, God. We thank you, Father, for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercies. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the fellowship with the Father. And Lord, continue to lead us into truth and righteousness. Father, help us in these last days, God, to choose to do right, to choose life over death, to choose to walk with you and not in the ways of the world. 
But Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for all that you do for us, God. We thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness, Father. That's in Jesus' mighty and precious name that we pray. Amen.